0: The uh, afternoon teaching is uh, Marana Nusati. You can come forward. So Marana, um, Mara is death. So Marana Nusati means contemplation of death. And this is one of the um, uh, several uh, particular practices that the Buddha encouraged, different forms of, of contemplation, different... A themes to, to bring to mind that are, are liberating so other ones that are also familiar uh, Buddhana sati contemplating the nature of the buddha dhamma sati contemplating the teaching sanghana contemplating the sangha um, chakkhana contemplating your own goodness um, anapanasati uh, contemplation of the breath <laughs> so, uh, marana sati is one of these standard contemplations uh, encouraged by the Buddha, and so uh, we'll look at various different aspects of this uh, during the afternoon. Oh, when I um, when I, I'm invited to to talk about this theme, one of the uh, uh, the teachings that I uh, uh, always find coming to mind is a particular uh, passage, a section from the Mahabharata, which is a a, a, a as teaching a, uh, a long scripture out of the Hindu tradition, the Vedic tradition. And there's a particular part of the story where um, the, the, the f- there are these five brothers, the Pandava brothers, um, who are the sort of heroes of the, of the tale. And they've been off banished into the forest, and they've come across this mysterious lake. And uh, fi- uh, four of the five brothers have fallen down dead, and the last brother is being um, grilled by a, 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 sort of a, a disembodied voice coming from over the lake, asking him all these um, uh, particular questions, philosophical and, uh, and spiritual questions. And amongst the many questions that uh, that come to ask the, the, the prince, uh, one is, what is the most uh, strange and marvelous thing in the world? You know, I think there's quite a range, and, and, and if he gets the answers right, then his brothers will be revived. If he gets any of the answers wrong, then they'll all die. So it's a fairly loaded uh, examination. Uh, If you have exam traumas in your life, if you had difficulty passing exams or facing exams, then this is a really uh, intense one. So he knows if he gets one question wrong, it's all over for them. So he has to get it right. And what he answers is, he says, the most strange and marvelous thing in the world is that even though every single one of us... uh, Every single living being will enter the gates of death. We all think that it's not going to happen to us. And then the, the voice said, correct. <laughs> so, that the way, it struck me as a very uh, 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 simple, straightforward, potent way of, of talking about it. it. That there's this mysterious thing that um, even though every single one of us is going to die. So when I say these words, everybody in this sala, in this hall, is going to die one day. Now, when I say those words, isn't it weird that that sounds like a a strange idea? Well, it's news. The first thought in our mind is, no, 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 that can't be right, right? But how could it not be true? Every single one of these bodies is one day going to stop breathing, either because we are in a car crash, we have heart failure, or we're hit by a meteorite, or Something will, will happen to end these lives. It's absolutely inescapable. But yet, when I say those words, every single one of us here is going to die one day. These bodies will come to an end. There's, a, there's a, something that resists that and says, oh, no, 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 that can't be right. <laughs> so the, that's what this, um, this passage from the Mahabharata is pointing to. And uh, it's a natural reflex that we have as human beings. And if you, you, you notice, that, you know, both within the cultures of the West and, and many places around the world, there is different ways that we, we sort of put that, that reality of, of death, uh, the inevitability of, of these bodies dying, we, we put it at a distance. So even when I was a child, I used to think it was funny that people would say uh, things like, if something should ever happen, To me, there's about five layers of conditionals there. It's like, how many layers of padding do you need? If we can't say when I die, when I die, (laughs) don't say that. It's going to guarantee to ruin the 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 discussion at dinner parties. If uh, rather than you know when I die, we say if if something, if as if there was a choice. Something that we won't talk about, but we all know we know what we're talking about. <laughs> if something should, another layer of conditionals ever, you know, at some point maybe, <laughs> you know, happen. Yeah, and so uh, again, it's natural enough that we we cover ourselves in these layers of of uh, padding. Um, but that uh, so we, we protect ourselves from that, that fact of, of our death, you know, that uh, all lives uh, end in that way. These bodies all uh, end uh, end up uh, stopping breathing one day. That uh, what uh, the Buddha's teaching points us to uh, is that the more that we live under that that kind of fear or that denial, that rejection, or that we, we go along with that. Then we uh, we create more of a, a sense of disease in ourselves. We create we create more fear. We create more of a, uh, a, a quality of instability within ourselves. And so uh, this practice or this this uh, I say meditation of Marananusati or mindfulness of death is specifically designed to go against that that reflex that kind of. A uh, fearful uh, psychological reflex that sort of pushes uh, pushes the reality of death away, puts it off into the into the distance. So uh, uh, one of the the um, uh, frequent uh, chants that we we recite, the verses that we recite, is what's called the five subjects for frequent recollection. So the, the Buddha encouraged us to recollect every day. Yeah, I am of the nature to age. I am of the nature to sicken, I am of the nature to die. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And then the last one is, I'm the owner of my karma, born of my karma, heir to my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Now, to uh, our normal self-centered patterns of thinking, that's all very depressing, Right? You we'll probably all, all agree. Yeah, you know, I'm of the nature to age. Oh, don't talk about it, Ajahn. You know, don't tell me. I already know. You know, I can't stand looking in the mirror. You know. uh, I'm of the nature to age. I'm of the nature to sicken. I'm of the nature to die. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. Will become separated from me. So, to, to the conditioned, uh, habitual, self-centered patterns of thinking, that's disaster. <laughs> We want we want to ensure ourselves so that we won't lose anything that we love. We want to protect and, and keep, and uh, lock things down. We want we don't want to uh, remember that we're going to get sick or that we're going to die. We we seem to hope that's going to happen to uh, some other time or to some other people or not to us. And when when we as we do age, we can feel like well how could this be happening? <laughs> or as we uh, we get sick, like we we treat it as some kind of weird. Um, Disaster, like something strange has gone wrong, uh, and the fact of death, we, we look upon as a um, uh, some kind of intrinsic crisis, or something that something terrible, something bad has happened in our life, or or that the doctors have failed because the uh, the person has died. But uh, I'm not promoting um, sort of self destructiveness, or not I'm not promoting the sort of uh, idea of not treating illnesses, not at all. But uh, it's important to recognise that uh, we are we die because we're born. You know, bodies are so incredibly complicated and intricate. Uh, it's no surprise at all that they don't work perfectly all of the time. Uh, I've often mentioned how I did uh, years ago. I was a student at London, London University. I did a, a joint degree in psychology and physiology. And after three years of studying physiology, I came to the conclusion. The human body can't possibly work. It's, just, it's too complicated. There's too many things to go wrong. You've got hundreds of millions, billions of chemical reactions going on minute by minute, and they work. It's just, I would come out of these lectures sometimes and sort of onto the, the street in London. I think, how come we're all walking? <laughs> how come even a few of us can see clearly and can hear and can, you know, you know even uh, even run, or, or pole vault, you know. It's incredible, amazing that uh, these things hold together as well as they do. So when we reflect in that way, sickness should be no surprise. And and similarly, death, the cause of death, is, is birth. Yeah, we say it's from a car crash, or from cancer, or from uh, from uh, an aneurysm, or a uh, uh, one disease or another, but Really, if we look at it, the the cause of of death is is birth. So with this, uh, to the ego-centered patterns of thinking, this is very unpleasant. Just even hearing the words, even saying the words, something, oh, don't say that. (laughs) That something in us recoils. But the Buddha didn't encourage us to to bring these things to mind because he had a a kind of sadistic streak, or he just wanted everyone to be miserable, but uh, what he was helping us to do was to, to cut through those, those fearful habits, those limiting and uh, constricting uh, patterns of thinking, to let go of self-centered thinking and to, to see life, to understand life in a, a more broad and complete way. So it's uh, through recollecting that, uh, yes, well, how could, <laughs> how could uh, we not be facing death? How could that not be the case? There's nothing going wrong. Uh, this is just the natural consequence. So, this as the last of those five reflections is about the nature of karma, it's like, well, having been born, how could this this life not end up in death? It's impossible. It can't. It, it can't happen any other way. And so, what that is helping us to do is to break through the the self-centered, the person-centered habits of thinking, to to see uh, to see life, to embrace life from a, a more universal uh, level is a more nature-centered way of, of seeing, uh, of thinking, of, of understanding. So this is what the, these teachings are, are trying to help us to do. And by turning the attention to that then uh, and inviting that in, embracing that, then um, we are able to, to shift that view to some degree. Even that, even that moment of when I said "You know, everyone here is going to die and then, uh, one day, yeah, obviously not today. I hope. <laughs> this is a, suddenly there's a the first earthquake in Hertfordshire in a thousand years, and the, the whole ground opens up underneath the sala. It certainly make the uh, the Hemel Gazette. <laughs> but I don't think that'll happen today. But um, that um, that moment of oh yeah, that's right. Huh. That that huh. That's the, the, in a way, the gateway, the the doorway to uh, that more universal um, pattern of thinking, a more nature-centered way of seeing and thinking and letting go of our narrow ego-centered or or person-centered views. Uh, Many years ago, to illustrate this, I I was having a a conversation during an interview on a a retreat here. One of the retreatants told me of of a dream that she had had, a very, very... Um, lucid, kind of clear dream, and it was at a time shortly after there'd been a, a, um, uh, the child of a a friend of hers had died in a very tragic accident, and she had uh, two or three children of her own, the woman who was talking to me, so she was um, very uh, concerned about the welfare of her own children, found herself being very anxious uh, and protective and and quite worried for their, their well-being. And then one night she had this very very clear dream, and uh, she, in the dream she woke up, and she woke up in her ordinary bedroom, and uh, it was it was quite dark, and then um, and then she f- felt this strange sensation in the bed in the bed next to her, and rather than her husband lying there in the bed, there was this skeleton. <laughs> there was this. Uh, uh, the the figure of death you know skeleton scythe hourglass the whole thing and so she um so <gasps> and a kind of she said it was kind of like a cartoon but a really kind of a scary cartoon <laughs> so there was this figure of, of the sort of scythe, death with the scythe and the, the hourglass lying in the bed so she leapt up and kind of and, and uh, Tried to escape, but she couldn't get the door open, couldn't get out of the room. So she sort of huddled down in the corner, full of fear. And what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then uh, she couldn't get away, she couldn't uh, do anything. And then she heard this strange kind of noise. (laughs) And she looked up and thought, what's that strange? It sounds like somebody crying. So she looked up, and, and there was death kind of. You know, sitting up in bed with tears running down the the front of the skull she, she said, what what's the matter and then and death said it's always the same everywhere i go people just take one look and they run away screaming everyone hates me everyone fears me yeah. do you think i like doing this job <laughs> do you think this is fun yeah and uh, this is before terry pratchett you know this is uh, Many many years ago, and uh, he said, "You know, what do you think it's like going around ruining everybody's lives? Where, you know, wherever I have, wherever I go, and that's my job. You know, it's uh, I hate doing this, but it's the only thing I can do." And so um, she came, she found this sort of protective and motherly feeling coming over her again. So she sort of went over and sat down. And thought, Put her arm and kind of felt this sort of, ooh, not quite sure about this, but sort of put her, her arm around the bony shoulders and said, Well, you know, don't worry, it's all right. And, and so then it kind of, death continued sobbing and she said, You know, it's really, it's all right, it's all right. And then she leaned over and she was, was uh, going to give death a hug. So she put, wrapped her arms around, around this, the, the figure of death. And she, at that moment she said, I, I kind of had this sort of, Oh, this is not going to be very nice. <laughs> sort of cold and bony. and So she, kind of, she closed her eyes as she, as she sort of wrapped her arms around the form of, of death, like, uh, sitting there in the bed. And she said, as her arms closed around the form, uh, suddenly she realized, oh, it's gone. <laughs> and as literally as she embraced death, then uh, when she opened her eyes, uh, the, the, uh, the figure had disappeared completely. And the, the room was, was filled with daylight. And the windows were open, and the curtains billowing in the in the breeze and the morning sunlight. And, then, and she woke up. She thought, "Well, that was a message." <laughs> and it couldn't have really been more clear that it's yeah, you know, uh, the as long as we fear death, then we have it has power over us. And when we embrace it, then uh, we we discover that in us which is uh, say transcendent over it, which is um, unborn, undying, that which is free from the, the death-bound limitations. And in the Buddhist text, you have the figure of Mara, who's like the, the Satan figure of the Bible. Mara is, literally means death. And so Mara's always coming along to, to test the Buddha, sort of put him on the spot and, and try him out. And the Buddha uh, always nearly always responds by saying, I know you, Mara. You know, I know who you are. He doesn't fight against death, but through understanding, I know what you are. Then Mara uh, has to retreat and, and gives up. So the uh, the, the recollections of, of death um, and the, the contemplations that you have in the one of the, the key places that this is um, described in the suttas is in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. And in the... Uh, the first section of that about mindfulness of the body, and a large number of, uh, of um, sections of that are about death contemplations and uh, imagining the, the body at various different states of, of decay after it's died. So, you know, uh, a body that's, that's just, just died, a body that's been dead for a couple of days, sort of turning, turning blue, getting stinky, you know, body with the, the skin falling off and, the, and the, the flesh withering away. You know, there's about nine different levels. Um, to the, having bones with a few sinews and a bit of dried muscle on, you know, bones held together with sinews, bones scattered you know, all over the graveyard. You know, here a shin bone, there a back bone, there a jaw bone. Yeah. So those are the, the classical Maranana Sati, the kind of contemplations uh, of death. And they can be very useful. And uh, That's why I had this, invited this, this skull. I'm not quite sure uh, uh, who this uh, was once upon a time. But uh, uh, the the contemplations of death uh, and and the body, uh, it's a way of of, uh, not trying to sort of freak ourselves out or or be upsetting or or make things difficult for ourselves. But uh, as I said, it's a way of helping us to recognize, well, look, look at that. So just as I said, you know, one day all of us here are going to die. And we go, oh, yeah, right. I can ask the question, how many skulls are there in this room? The first thought might be one. <laughs> but then you think, hang on a minute. <laughs> we, uh, we each carry one around with us, right? Yeah. So uh, I'd say there's probably 60 or 70 skulls in this room. But our first thought is, oh, there's, there's one skull in the room. And uh, Ajahn Chah in the, the main monastery in Thailand, the Wat Pong, there used to be two, uh, two skeletons uh, hanging there, uh, in the little kind of cases in the, in the shrine room. And he's and when people would come, they'd often sort of, if they were coming for the first time, they'd walk into the the sala the the meeting hall and they'd see the skeleton and they'd go oh, and kind of make a kind of a, a wide berth around it and sit you know twenty or thirty yards away and and he and he would make a point say why are you why are you afraid of a skeleton? You carry one around with you everywhere you go <laughs> you know what what's so frightening about a skeleton you you, you you're never separate from one all the time you know you, you take it to, you, you take it to bed with you every night you know you're, it's it's everywhere you go so what's to be afraid in in bones you know but uh, you're happy to be with other people we're happy to be with you know, to be with, uh, with our friends or family or chatting with others but then when we see a skull we think, <gasps> but yeah we're seeing skulls all the time <laughs> that are covered up with skin and muscle and and glasses and makeup and, and uh, different expressions, but uh, we use these these particular kind of contemplations to help us see those those uh, reactions that we have, and to help us to to break through and say, Yeah, look at that. I'm I'm really uh, habitually afraid, or I make these projections, but I carry a skull around with me all the time. Why should Why should that be somehow alarming or different or strange or freaky? Because uh, I live with one, I, I'm glad I have one. <laughs> it's really useful to have a, a skull. You know, nothing strange or or or, or difficult or, or dangerous about it. Uh, another kind of uh, contemplation that, that we do um, in in Thailand, uh, they have um, they give permission for monastics to go to see autopsies at the hospitals in. Uh, <coughs> And so, because they know that Mara Anusati, the contemplation of death, is part of, of uh, Buddhist practice, Buddhist meditation, then the, the hospital system allows people to go and, and watch an autopsy. So, in, uh, a number of years ago, I had the chance to be in Thailand, and um, I went along to a, an autopsy. And this was at the, the police hospital. And so, we went on a, a Monday, because uh, they, they don't do autopsies on the weekend, so they, they sort of have a lot of... <laughs> A lot of arrivals over the weekend, and then they they have a lot of uh, different bodies to work on on the Monday. And so I'd never i never been in this uh, situation before, and uh, obviously I'd heard about many other people going to to these and seeing this in a way, also reflecting on the body and the, the body that we live with, and the uh, the kind of um, uh, reactions that we can get through you know, seeing a dead body or the smell of a dead body, and so forth. I've been with many people, quite a number of people, when they died, but. Never actually seeing an autopsy, so one of the things that was really um, interesting to me, along with being there and watching the, uh, the doctors were sort of showing us how things were done and, and, uh, and working on, on the bodies and sort of taking the, the skin off and, and opening things up and checking the different organs, the various things. So uh, what was really fascinating to me was that that although that was, that was kind of impressive or, or um, powerful in its own way. I found myself fascinated by the, the fact that you know there's this sort of young man lying out on the on the table, and the thought that when he put that T-shirt on, because they'd all died from accidents, because they were uh, it was like the, the the police hospital, so it was people who died through injury or accident or found in the in the canal or, or um, had been um, uh, had been in a fight or something like that. And so the the, um, the everyone who's who, di- who had died. It was an unexpected death, as it were, and so what, it was quite startling to me. But what, what was striking was the, the thought that when he put that T-shirt on, he had no idea that was the last shirt he'd ever wear. But when she painted her fingernails, she was so and you know, she didn't realise that was the last time she was ever going to paint her nails. You know? When he laced up those his his um, his, uh, his sneakers. You know, when he tied the bow on his sneakers, he didn't realize that was the last pair of shoes he was ever going to put on put on his feet. And so I was surprised at this, that um, even more than, than the bodies being dismantled and, and all of that, that sense of they didn't know. It was an ordinary day just going off to the building site and then suddenly there's a piece of scaffolding comes down and, and you wax know, this young fellow on the head or this woman fell off the back of a motorcycle or a little boy who'd choked on a, a piece of food uh, that sense of, of that the morning, the, that morning when they woke up, they put on their shoes, they put on their t-shirt, or they got, got ready for school or work. And they didn't know, and that had a, a strangely powerful effect on me because, of course, then if you pick that up, think well, of course. <laughs> but as you're as you're walking out of the building, well, this might be the last, <laughs> you know, the last street I ever cross, or this you know this might be the the last uh, the last time I ever see the sun, or this might be the you know, the last time I ever you know, put my, my robes on. And uh, that is, that kind of reflection on, on the uncertainty of life is another kind of marananasati. So, along with the, those other kinds of contemplation of death, like looking at bones and, and um, going to autopsies and so forth, this is a very, um, a, a very usable and accessible kind of reflection on death. And there's a, a, a sutra in the um, Chinese tradition called the Sutra in 42 Sections. And, and the section 38 of it. Uh, there's a, a, a teaching that relates to this, which is uh, uh, very, very useful. And it starts off with the Buddha asking you know, one of the, the monastics, uh, says how long is a human lifespan? And the first one says, 70 years. We can expect to live so 70 years. And the Buddha said, you don't understand my teaching. And then, 60 years, 50 years, yeah, trying that one monk after another. 40 50, 40, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. You don't understand my teaching. We, can, though, we can't expect to live more than a year. No, you don't understand my teaching. <laughs> yeah. Half a year, yeah, three months, one month, two weeks, one week. You don't understand my teaching. One day, yeah, you don't understand my teaching. Half a day. <clears throat> the time it takes to eat a meal. No, you don't understand my teaching. Finally, after you know, this long succession of, of different tries, the one monk finally says, uh, we, can, we can expect to live the time it takes to go from the beginning to the end of an in-breath or the beginning to the end of an out-breath. That much we can be sure of. And he said, you understand my teaching. <laughs> so if you, if you time it, which, I, I, uh, which I've done, it's somewhere between three and four seconds. And I think even medically, if you have an aneurysm, you've got probably about that amount of time. But between the time when the vein goes pop and you, you black out completely. So we have three or four seconds to play with to get get our act together. <laughs> when you know the end is coming, you've got a couple of seconds to play with. So that that's, a, I find, a very uh, potent kind of uh, death contemplation. And, uh, and it's also a very powerful support for mindfulness because when your mind is caught up with something that you're annoyed with, you're upset with somebody and your, your mind is complaining, oh, how could he do that? That's really outrageous. If you then consider, if I've only got three seconds to live, do I really want to die <laughs> with this kind of uh, with vengeance on my mind? Or, you know, do I want to be uh, upset or, or, or angry? Or if you're desiring something, oh, if only I had this, if only I could move house, if only I could... Uh, get away from this uh, this difficult situation. If only I could go over there, if I could be with this person, or I could get that job, then, <laughs> then, then, then. And uh, similarly, if you reflect, well, if I've only got three or four seconds left to go, do I want to create myself as being in a state of lack, that I can't be happy unless I've moved to this other town, or I've got this other job, or I've got, uh, joined up with this other person, or I've uh, moved to this other monastery, or, you know, join the monastic life, or left the monastic life. <laughs> but uh, you, we, we see how we're continually creating tension within ourselves and agitation. And this, this kind of reflection is very helpful to, to support the mindfulness of uh, what, am I, what are we hanging on to right now? What are we fearing? What are we longing for? What are we irritated about? What what's the uh, what are we feeling righteous about? You know, we've we got an opinion <laughs> that we have about the the government or about a family member or about the Ajahn. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, do we want to do we want this to be our last moment? Do we do we really want to be uh, carrying this around? So a way I developed this this um, particular reflection is uh, it it only really works if you're not the one ringing the bell in the meditation. So I did this for years and years. Uh, I lived here at Amravati for about 10 years, from 85 to 95. And so uh, Lumpur was the was the abbot of the community, and so he was always leading the meditation sittings. So as a standard practice, what I would do, I, w- I would say to myself, OK, this is the last hour of your life. Uh, last 45 minutes, last hour, yeah, give or take, for when... Uh, as when uh, Ajahn Sumedha was going to ring the bell, and so when the bell goes, that's that's your last moment, and you've got until the sound of the bell fades away to drop everything and get ready to go. And it's a it's a a, a, a practice I recommend a lot because it's extremely revealing, because you, even in the meditation hall you can be apparently meditating, quite composed in your mind. You're supposed to be meditating, but in fact your mind has gone off on some worry or some plan or some nostalgia or some resentment or you know, some just busyness and then ding and you've got from the time that you hear the bell <laughs> to the, okay now where am I and can I can I drop that can I let go of that that exciting project or that that, you know, that uh, worrying conflict or uh, whatever it might be that sense of responsibility i've got to look after my mother or you know what I'm going to do about this particular project or i haven't finished that book yet and then ding are you ready to to let it all go are you ready to 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 see that uh, it's done <laughs> many many years ago um, i was in california and there was this uh, fella called ken price who was a good uh, good friend of the monastery and um, and he's a very kind of down-to-earth, regular American guy. His entire wardrobe, literally, he had eight pairs of cowboy boots, uh, about t- uh, 10 pairs of Levi jeans, and about 20 check shirts. And that was all the clothes he had. Nothing but cowboy boots, Levi jeans, and, and check shirts. <laughs> so he was a real kind of American country, country man. And, uh, but he'd also been involved in meditation and spiritual practice for many years. And he was a very kind of can-do, nothing's going to hold me down kind of a bloke. And so even w- uh, uh, when he had pleurisy and he was having uh, major breathing problems, he walked two miles to the emergency room. <laughs> you know, he said, like, I, well, I couldn't, I couldn't drive and I couldn't be bothered to call for a cab, so I thought I'd just walk. And so he did that once. And then um, second time, with pleurisy and then pneumonia, and uh, he he keeled uh, keeled over again, and this time he he got a ride to the to the doctor's surgery, and uh, as because he, th- he thought, yeah, I really I really do need help here, so he got a neighbour to drive him in, and uh, he got out of the, the vehicle and sort of collapsed on the grass in front of the the uh, medical centre, so the nurses and the medical people came rushing out and strapping him onto a. A, um, a stretcher, and, and he said, "I'm not sure what's happening." And uh, and the nurse said, "Well, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not certain. But I think you're, I'm pretty sure you're having a heart attack." And he said, "Well, I'm not ready for this." <laughs> and then and this was being recounted by his uh, his daughters at his funeral. He, he said uh, that uh, he told the nurse, "I'm not I'm not ready for this." And then as it became clear that he, he was having a massive heart attack, and then they were straf- strapping him onto the to the gurney to put him on a helicopter to take him to the heart unit in San Francisco. Then they're, sort of, they're, they're buckling him up, and they're sort of about to, to take off. He said, well, I guess I'm ready now. <laughs> <laughs> and then he actually died in flight. He sort of, on the In the helicopter ride, he, he passed away. But that, um, you know, he also, he could, he was kind of laughing at himself. She said, his daughter said, uh, uh, you know, he, he heard himself saying, I'm not ready for this. It's like, oh, yeah? <laughs> Have you been consulted, you know? Uh, you, know, you don't actually have a vote here <laughs> but that, uh, that sense of uh, okay better get ready because it can happen at any moment so I found that a very very useful practice and we did a, a death and dying retreat here a few years ago and I thought I'd, I'd try this out with a, with a sort of group meditation so we, we took over the temple one morning we had the women on the one side men on the other side and put out all the mats to have all the retreatants lying down on the floor of the temple and I did a guided meditation of that. Uh, okay, this is your last half hour, 45 minutes. And I didn't tell them how long the sitting was going to, or the lying, <laughs> the lying was, or the dying was going to be. You know. So it might be 20 minutes, it might be half an hour, it might be 45 minutes. And then just, okay, when, and when the bell goes, that's your last moment. And um, uh, conducted in that way, also halfway through a ten day re- week-long retreat, then it was a really, really wonderful uh, practice to do. Some people couldn't stop giggling. You know, some people um, fell asleep. <laughs> other people uh, had very powerful feelings of, of gladness, rejoicing of the things that had happened in their life. Other people had a lot of regret. Uh, other people um, had, you know, had a lot of anxiety, but then just walking through it, like, okay, well, you know, the, the, is this a time to be hanging on to that anxiety? You know, okay, that was a very sweet memory that you have. Okay. Do you want to hang on to it, or is it time to let go of that as well? And uh, we we see that uh, the things that we regret that we've done, we can let go of. The things that we resent uh, others having done, we can let go of. The things that we, we rejoice in having done, we can let go of. Uh, the things that we are very grateful and glad that others have done, we can let go of. And so the sweet, the bitter, the busy, <laughs> uh, uh, all of it, or just uh, the, the, the mind that wants to just sort of giggle and like and, and joke about things. Well, okay, are you, if this really is your last 10 minutes, are you going to be giggling? Really? Well, congratulations. May it be so. <laughs> but but walking uh, w- and working through all of that, it uh, was very revealing and very you know, potent, uh, potent kind of a practice. So uh, you can try this in your own homes. <laughs> uh, so sort of death rehearsal and to, to uh, say, okay, I'll just set a timer and put it out of view and then just uh, uh, walk uh, walk myself through it. Just see how that, uh, see what the mind wants to hang on to. See what the mind is is uh, not ready to let go of or, or wants to just negotiate or that says, wait a minute, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> just to see the things that, uh, where the mind is really knotted, those deep regrets or that... Um, that resentment (laughs) that you just don't want to let go of I want revenge well is it really worth hanging on to so this uh, um, this kind this is a a very useful and practical kind of, uh, of experiment to do and to help reveal those things but along with attachment to our our uh, physical being and you know, there is also uh, physical death, and Mara Nanusati doesn't just relate to death in physical terms, but you can extend it to um, more the, the psychological realm. There, there's, a, there's a famous um, oft-quoted um, statistic. Uh, I looked it up today, <laughs> just to check my facts, and it was called the Bruskin Report. It was the, published in 1973, And something like 2,500 Americans, uh, women and men, were interviewed. And the question is, uh, what are you afraid of? And number one on the list of things that Americans were afraid of, 41% of the people were most afraid of public speaking. Death was number seven on the list. Only 19% had death as the the thing they were most afraid of. Public speaking was... uh, was uh, uh, at the top of the list with 41 percent and they repeated it 20 years later and public speaking was still top of the list. <laughs> so this is a, I find it's a really intriguing um, uh, perspective on things. it's like also they uh, when I was looking it up on the uh, on the computer they quoted this American comedian Jerry Seinfeld who commented on this saying, so if you go to a funeral, you'd rather be the guy in the box than the one giving the eulogy. You know, most people would prefer to be the, the, uh, the deceased rather than, the, than the one who's having to talk about it, give the eulogy. So what that says to me is that we're more afraid of, of ego death, of dying on stage, of getting things wrong, looking, looking a fool, being embarrassed, than we are of physical death. And I, I think it's uh, the lot, when you reflect on that, it's to do with, uh, I think that particularly in the modern Western world, because there's so much, uh, say, um, bu- uh, there's effective buffering for the body, we can make ourselves so comfortable and we can kind of dress things up and, and uh, the, the, the rawness of, uh, of death and the, the kind of merciless quality of, of death and the dying process is sort of hidden away from us. So death is a sort of an abstract concept. But embarrassment, social failure, being rejected, being unloved, uh, dying on stage, looking like an idiot, um, those are very real, <laughs> very tangible. It's not remote at all. And so that we, uh, whereas physical death is, I mean, many people have never even seen a dead body. Nowadays, you really have to go out of your way to try and uh, to, to, uh, to see a, a person who's died and often... Many, many people in, well into adult life have never even seen a, a dead body of any kind. So it's sort of kept away from our view, so death becomes a sort of, well, I don't mind dying, I just don't want it to be painful or embarrassing. <laughs> but uh, ego death, so, uh, being rejected, um, being fired from your job, um, having your partner walk out on you, uh, having your children walk out on you, uh, having... Uh, yeah, um, giving dharma talks and everybody falling asleep or getting up and walking out on you, yeah, this is the, the, this is death. This is a kind of ego death. Yeah, you're running a ten-day retreat and and there's the the retreat manager is running out of boxes of Kleenex. You know, and and five or ten people have left by the fourth day. Then you know you you can't take that personally. <laughs> but this is a kind of death that we can relate to much more easily. So we are identified with our personality and um, and so that, that uh, when we're contemplating death it uh, it can be very remote you might think well i'm doing my death contemplations i'm you know visualizing a skull i've got a picture of a skeleton on the wall and but and that might be we might be quite happy with that but then if you visualize yourself getting up on stage and and uh, saying something stupid uh, or that uh, you know you <laughs> have um you you publish a book and then you get you're completely shredded in the in the reviews. <laughs> Those who have bothered to review your book you know, give it the most sort of, uh, appalling uh, kind of, uh, demolition. Uh, so then, how do we feel? What's it like when uh, when when we visualise that uh, getting up onto a, a, a stage or giving a eulogy at someone's funeral and everybody sort of Staring at the floor, looking embarrassed, getting up, walking out, going for a drink. <laughs> Start to visualize, even saying the words. Um, so probably some of you are having the sort of shriveling. Ugh. Just the, uh, even the idea of it is, is is painful. So when we're talking about uh, visualizations or, or recollections of death, and it's, I would encourage you also to explore those ego deaths and to look, what's the kind of ego death that I'm afraid of? You know, that uh, being... Uh, being rejected, being criticised, um, or um, being old and needing help—that's when people say, "I don't, I don't mind dying, but I just don't want to to lose my faculties. I don't want to, to lose my independence. I don't want anyone to have to help me. I don't want to be a bother to anyone." Right? Many people are more afraid of being a bother, and this being England, you know, we we quail from being a bother to anybody that we don't want to sort of intrude and even when you say, well, look, other people might actually enjoy helping you. But, no, no, just don't help me, don't help me. Yeah. And um, my my mother was like that, and my, my sister had to develop this extremely cunning ways of just happening to drop in. <laughs> and she wasn't coming to help. No, no, absolutely not, but she just happened to be passing by, and she felt like she could use a cup of tea. And then, oh, look, there's some... <laughs> oh, could I cook lunch for you? And they, oh, that'd be nice, thank you. <laughs> so it was this kind of... Uh, Skillful use of cunning to because my mother didn't want to be helped, and uh, she uh, is by no means alone, so that same kind of feeling of ego death, like being disabled, you can't walk, you can't think clearly, you can't remember things, you can't remember where you put your shoes like it can be very very painful and far worse than the, the sort of the concept of, of dying, that sense of having to be useless or, or like a, someone who can't even button their own clothes up they can't. Uh, Can't get about. They can't remember things. So that is far more. It can be far more painful. Even just saying the words, you know, you can feel that sense of oh no, don't don't talk about that. (laughs) But in exactly the same way, it's very helpful for us to rather than just investing in youth and thinking you're forever young. (laughs) You know, I'm going to grow old disgracefully. You know, I'm going to get a Harley Davidson for my 80th birthday. You know that. uh, well perhaps' <laughs> but it'd be more useful rather than visualizing yourself on a harley-davidson um, uh, for your 80th birthday to visualize yourself not being able to walk and not being able to think straight yeah needing to have your food made for you needing to have someone to come and tidy your your living place that you know the things that we we don't want we fear that we we kind of feel awful and shouldn't happen just let those into the mind invite that in just as as we would uh, at, at the other kinds of death, death contemplations, that, that, uh, and we find that, well, it's not so bad. And actually, it might be true. It might be that, that they enjoy helping me, and by me pushing them away, I'm stopping them from enjoying themselves. <laughs> and they really want to look after me. Oh, what a thought. Yeah. So that uh, I, I would really encourage that kind of creative use, and that uh, for all of, all of us, there's going to be different ways different things that we, uh, we sort of uh, are afraid of or that we shrink we shrink away from and to explore that and to to uh, let that into the mind. And when we, we do, just as um, raising up the, the fact of death can help us sort of see beyond that, then the raising up the fact of, of ego death and things failing or falling apart or being rejected to, to be able to see, well, how could I be the one person in the world that never fails at anything? how could I be the one person that's always loved by everybody? (laughs) Why should I be the one person that everything that they do is always approved of by everyone in the world? It's totally impossible. Statistically, it's never going to happen that way. Um, And so that when we turn towards it and embrace it, just like the the woman in the dream, sort of wrapping herself around the the skeleton of of death, then suddenly we find that our, our mind is just like that that the the bedroom suddenly filled with with morning sunlight and the fresh breeze coming through the windows. This is, in a way, the kind of uh, expression of of the heart transcending the the bounds of of birth and death, finding that dimension of our being, which is beyond birth and death, which is timeless, that very quality of of Dhamma, the Satya Dhamma, the true reality of our own nature, which is unborn, undying. Or maybe the, the last uh, or related aspect of this and uh, <coughs> the, um, uh, the way that uh, Ajahn Chah used to often uh, uh, relate to this was when people would come to visit the monastery, Wat Bapong, uh, when Ajahn Chah was teaching. Uh, uh, um, then he would often ask people, you know, why have you come here? Ma Pu Arai. What have you come here for? And Tom said, "Oh, I've come here to realize enlightenment, Lumpur. And he sort of, <laughs> and he said, well, "What do you come here for?" He said, "Well, I, I want to practice the Dhamma," you know. Well, mm-hmm. "What do you come here for?" "Well, yeah, you know, I want to make. I I've come here to to make merit for my mother and father." He So, sort of ask a few people, and he and they say, uh, and then he would sort of say, "Have you come here? Uh, has anyone come here to die?" <laughs> and they, "Well, no, no not exactly. We're <laughs> be far better at." Uh, to, to come here to die than to come to try and achieve something and go, what? <laughs> and uh, there's a frequent <laughs> way he would uh, address people to say um, you know, have you come here to die and often particularly westerners you know, many sort of starry eyed you know, people sort of coming up on the train from Bangkok and I, <laughs> you know you heard the stories and you know, you're expecting to meet the guru and and, uh, and you know, he'll look at you in the eye and say ah oh, at last you've come yeah, waiting for you as his sort of star disciple, and so he would you know, deflate that immediately. See, and then he could—he also—he was a very good actor, so he could—he could be absolutely deadpan. He say, say, "Have you come here to die?" <laughs> he, he's joking, right? He's not joking. He's joking. He's not joking. <laughs> But he he in a way, he wasn't. In a way, he was joking, and in a way, he wasn't, <laughs> because what he was uh, pointing to was that if you come here to become something, if you come here to get something, like me getting my spiritual life together, or me getting some merit for my parents, or me uh, getting enlightened, then uh, that it's still me doing something, me trying to get somewhere, and the mind is still locked within that. Um, the boundaries of of what we call becoming or bhavatanha, the desire to become or be or do something, and that desire to become is one of the major causes of of a dukkha, of dissatisfaction, of, of discontent, of of imbalance in our lives. And so, why you say, have you come here to die? like <laughs> really, have you come here to let go of self-centered thinking? Have you come here to let go of of your egotistical habits? Are you ready to let go? Are you ready to to uh, to see your um, the, the eye making and mind making habits and drop them? and And the way of life in the monastery was designed to illuminate to, to any of those sort of self self centered habits and preferences and and to to meet them and to to see them to, and to be able to let go of them. He also uh, used the expression uh, die-gon-die, which means die before you die, and which is surprisingly similar. He'd never heard of St. Teresa of Avila, I'm absolutely sure, (laughs) but she also had a a, a saying that's often quoted, which is uh, die before you die so that when you die, you don't die. Die before you die so that when you die, you don't die. So that might be a bit mystifying to some of you. <laughs> but it's the same principle. Right? You die before you die. So you learn to let go of your self-centered habits, your, your person-centered perspective, before your body dies. So that when your body does die, you're not identified with it. <laughs> so that when the, when, when the body dies, then you've, you've already learned the body is not self. You know, the personality is not self. This personal history, history is not who and what I am. That's just. These are just convenient fictions that we, we use in the world. And so uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure, I mean, uh, second-guessing a Christian saint and a, and a Buddhist arahant is probably not a sensible thing to do, but I suspect <laughs> that they meant exactly the same thing in that expression. Yeah. Die before you die. And so that uh, that letting go of I and me and mind just seeing those... Um, uh, the self-centered habits, the, you know, those ego-centered structures, as convenient fictions. They're like a, they're, they're transparent. There's no solid thing there. And when uh, we are able to see our, our life in that way, when we're able to to let go of those habits, then we find a, a tremendous freedom. And uh, that is what we call uh, deathlessness. And this place, Amravati is the deathless realm. So I thought it was kind of also appropriate, first of the Sunday talks in the deathless realm, contemplation of death. <laughs> so we don't contemplate death in order to make ourselves more depressed. Uh, but rather, that it's by turning towards death and, and, and knowing it, like the Buddha meeting Mara and saying, "You, know, I know you. <laughs> but it's through that turning towards it and embracing it, opening to it, then we can awaken to that which is unborn, undying, that which is deathless, the real amaravati, the real deathless realm. But as long as we're running away from death or we're negotiating with it or, or fearing it and hating it then we're empowering it we're we're, 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 we're uh, sort of making sure that Mara is fully and completely in charge <laughs> that, uh, that's what what we're doing when we, we uh, fear and hate death both physical death and uh, an ego death or psychological death but in, in either way so one of the um, the, the, la- the last thing to uh, to uh, bring up uh, as a as a um a death contemplation in this way is how uh, when we are um in this in terms of, of uh, deathlessness we are very attached to being understood or or being treated fairly and when we meet with injustice or people misunderstand us or misrepresent us then it's very easy and 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 they've got their facts wrong, it's not true, <laughs> then we can take you know, profound refuge in being right. How dare they? That's not fair. I never did that. How can they say that about me? <laughs> and um, it's not condoning other people's bad behavior or the fact they might be lying or, or you're not saying that their, their uh, actions are, are actually okay, <laughs> but more about our own feeling within us. And that uh, one of the the uh, the most helpful practices in this respect and how to 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 die before you die is uh, uh, to learn how to be misrepresented and misunderstood this is This is a profound practice, very testing. <laughs> but when people misunderstand you they they, they, they say uh, they are um, uh, taking uh, making assumptions about your your, where you're coming from, your attitude, that they're, they're saying things about you to other people that are, that are not true, that they're misrepresenting you. And without agreeing with what they're saying, without being passive, to find a place in your heart to recognize, well, that's what happens in the world. Just like the body gets sick because it's it's such a, a complex system. You know, how could I possibly expect for everyone in the world to treat me fairly? How could I expect myself to be a, 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 f- a fully respected and honoured object in everybody's mind, and that no one would ever say anything unkind or unfair or untrue about me. Just like expecting the body to never get sick or every chemical reaction always to work perfectly, the billions and billions of reactions that go on. How can I expect every person that I've met, that I've worked with, in my family, to be sympathetic <laughs> to my po- point of view, my perspective? It's asking too much, and so that you find that. Uh, that to to die before you die, <laughs> in this respect, is to say to to let go of that kind of demand that everybody see you as you would like to be seen. That you are able to you know, uh, to recognize that. Say, so, well, if that's what he wants to carry around, may he be happy. <laughs> it's, not tr- it's not true. It's not true. His his judgment is mistaken. But if he wants to make sure that's, if he insists that's true, if he remembers it that way. That's his business. And may he be happy with it. <laughs> and uh, you realize that when you, when you let go of that, and uh, you might have pointed out half a dozen times, well, actually, you're rem- remembering that incorrectly, friend. <laughs> that they insist, no, 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 I was there. I remember, Ajahn. Yeah. Okay, well, may you be happy with that. You, you find that you don't have to carry it around. That you can not be um, holding the world on your shoulders. You know, as, uh, as we let go, as we sort of drop that sense of wanting everyone to understand us or like us or, or treat us fairly, uh, without being passive, without just being a doormat, you realize that you don't have to create suffering about it. You can, uh, you can use even those painful experiences of being rejected or misunderstood or your feelings hurt, That even that, uh, those painful feelings become a, a doorway to the deathless. And uh, as uh, the Buddha said, Lumpur favorite quotation um, about Amravati is, uh, and the, uh, before every Dhamma talk, Lumpur recites that verse from the Dhammapada, Aparuta um, tesang amatasa, e dvara sotavantu, apamunchantu sadhang. The doors to the deathless are open. Let those, who have, uh, let those who can hear demonstrate their faith. So the doors to the deathless open through those death experiences. <laughs> Physical death, ego death, you know, social death—that—that is often the, the the where the the doors open, and so we kind of have a really nice door to the deathless, you know, with with mean, davers on either side, you know, like the temple, you know. You go, I want one of those, please. You know, so, well, yeah, but often it's the uh, it's the other, it's the the meeting of those challenges that help really. You know, crack the the door to the deathless open, and then it's up to us as it says those let those who can hear ye so to want to. let those who can hear those who recognize oh right <laughs> there's there's something beyond this there is a there is a a quality beyond this this uh, experience then we demonstrate our faith we we uh, trust that uh, realization of the the unborn the undying, the deathless, and then that's uh, the result of having, uh, dwelt on and explored the contemplation of of death and dying. So, I offer these thoughts for consideration this afternoon. And then we'll reconvene about 20 past.